You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. Unprecedented is the word that most people are using, regardless of your politics, regardless of where you stand on either of the prospective candidates, the assumed candidates for president in 2024. Everyone says it's unprecedented, and at least according to the polls, very few voters really want this choice that seems to be set before us, Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us for an update on the 2024 presidential race, Mark Hemingway, senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. Mark, welcome back. Glad to be back. Are you surprised that Donald Trump defeated former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley by 20 points in her home state? Oh, not in the slightest. I mean, this was predicted well in advance. All the polls seem to comport with this result. Everybody kind of understood this would be something of a definitive statement, being that Haley was formerly the governor of the state. It appears to be somewhat humiliating for her. So why is Haley staying in the race? She says because she thinks that Donald Trump can't beat Joe Biden. Why is she staying in? Well, even if it's true that Donald Trump can't beat Joe Biden, and yes, she has been saying this, there's no real point in making that point by running against Trump when you can't beat him and there's no evidence to suggest that you can. Uh, There's all kinds of rationales for what could be going on here. I mean, it could be as simple as Haley's trying to, you know, elevate her profile because if she really believes that Trump is going to lose in November, you know, she wants to be in the poll position for running in 2028. And this, you know, certainly elevates her profile as a fighter or whatever else. You know, it could be that she's got, you know, there's a there's a significant amount of, you know, rich anti-Trump donors out there. It could be that, you know, she's simply hoovering up the money from them and like this is what they want. It could be, you know, for all kinds of other personal reasons. She could be contemplating a third party run in a race where it's true that both of the major party candidates appear to have extremely high negatives. You know, if, if ever you were going to have a third party run, this look, this year looks a lot more favorable than most for that. Could be for all kinds of other reasons. She could just simply not like Trump and want to damage him. I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of, you know, rationales for this. But, you know, I've, Brett Baer, when he interviewed her uh, last week on Special Report, you know, tried to ask her about some of these things. You know, she's she's appears to be you know, for now, you know, saying that she's doing this, you know, in a straightforward way that she, you know, is competing seriously and isn't considering these other third-party candidacies and stuff. So that's what she's saying for now, but, you know, we'll see. How significant is it that it's being reported Haley lost the billionaire donors, the Koch brothers over the weekend? They simply said there's nothing more they think they can do for her. It's pretty darn significant. I mean, obviously they're a huge source of cash and, you know, on top of that, the, the Koch brothers and the Americans for Prosperity and a number of their other groups, you know, they have pretty big networks for on the ground campaigning and other things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty huge. And it makes sense. You know, if, if you really are, you really were in this for Haley, 
because you wanted an alternative at some point you're just throwing you know good money after bad and you know if she can't win in her home state that sends a pretty powerful signal that there's no point to her candidacy she doesn't have a chance of beating trump give us a summary if you can of the civil and criminal cases that donald trump currently faces wow that's a bit of an undertaking just so we're clear there's, I think, four main cases, and I'll try and go through them if I, you know, see if I can remember this correctly. So, the first one is we have the special counsel investigation into Trump for stuff related to January sixth. There are a bunch of charges related to this conspiracy to fraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct official proceeding, conspiracy obstruction of uh, conspiracy of obstruction attempt to obstruct an official proceeding and conspiracy against rights there's a lot of you know legal mumbo jumbo against a lot of this and currently there's a you know big issue before the supreme court right now jack smith has been preemptively gone to the supreme court on some of the issues involving this case he's basically asking the supreme court to rule in his favor to head off any sort of appeals that trump might launch in this case and it's really weird because he keeps filing these pleadings saying that there's a you know ur- this is an urgent matter and there's there's a lot of uh you know reasons for why we need to get this resolved rather than have it drag out in the legal system and he never says why <laughs> those what, or never expands on those reasons and the reasons are sort of patently obvious I and mean, they, they want to convict trump on this before the election, but he can't say that out loud because it smacks of political motivations. I, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to be too receptive to that. There's another related matter to this case that's also before the Supreme Court, which is that one of the charges that this is built upon, the obstructing and official proceedings, prosecutors have been using this obscure provision of Sarbanes-Oxley, which was a, a big uh, um, financial fraud law that was passed some years back that has a provision in there about obstructing proceedings but there's a lot of serious doubt that the way that this was you know written for financial crimes applies to other issues with the government more generally and in fact the prosecutors have been really liberal in using the same Sarbanes-Oxley charge for a lot of the January 6th protesters so a lot of people are expecting the Supreme Court is going to actually overturn that. And even though Trump isn't mentioned in the case by name, it, it affects his case. So you have a situation here where the Supreme Court is likely going to, um, or I should say a lot of you know, smart observers think that the Supreme Court is going to, um, you know, um, invalidate this charge. And it's going to gut a lot of uh, Jack Smith's case against Trump. Trump, for his part, is insisting that he had presidential immunity when this all happened and he shouldn't be charged for this. But it seems unlikely the Supreme Court is going to be as receptive to that. But, you know, again, that's all just speculation based on, on what's going on with that case. One of the other cases that's going on is, of course, the election interference case in Fulton County, Georgia. This involves various charges of, you know, Trump supposedly intimidating officials and other things like that. I would note that a lot of the reporting on this has been kind of misleading. There was this infamous phone call that's been widely taken out of context where Trump told the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who has, himself has not been a particularly great actor. I mean, people in his office were leaking things about Donald Trump to the Washington Post that later turned out not to be true and, and other serious issues with his office. But in this phone call with Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, for instance, Trump allegedly pressed him to, quote, to find 11,780 votes, which was the vote margin that he lost to Joe Biden in the state. And people have 
seized on this as evidence that Trump was trying to pressure the Secretary of State to like falsify the results of the election. That specific number was referring to this issue in the state of Georgia where there were a lot of votes in the last election that were technically illegal, even though they were cast by legal voters, because Georgia has a law that says that if you are you know, a registered voter who hasn't updated their address or whatever, and, and you you vote in a district that you're not supposed to be in, your vote shouldn't count. So like if the election six months after you moved and you forgot to update your voter registration and you just go back to your old precinct and you vote, that vote is not supposed to count, even though you're technically a resident of Georgia and your vote is legal. We can have all sorts of conversations about whether or not it's good to be invalidating votes that way. But there was a lot of evidence to show that the number of illegal votes according to the Georgia law because of that discrepancy between where people lived and where they were casting their ballots was, was in fact, more than the margin of victory if the law was strictly enforced. So there's been a lot of, you know, smoke about what Trump did or did not do, but that case is also falling apart because there's been this big drama because the Fulton County DA, Fannie Willis, has been engaged in this corrupt relationship with a lawyer that she hired to work on the case that she was romantically involved with. And she spent all this public money paying this guy who she was dating to work on this case and other things. And he, in turn, was spending a whole bunch of money on her. So it just smacks of corruption. On top of that, when this corruption was brought up in court recently, they testified all these details about their relationship. And it appears that the Trump people have gotten a hold of the cell phone records that place them together in the middle of the night and other things like that that appear to show that they, they may have lied under oath. So that case is falling apart. Then there is the case involving, gosh, I can't remember her name, but basically this New York gadfly lady whose name is totally escaping me accused Trump of sexual assault. This was kind of a crazy case because she couldn't remember the exact year that the assault took place, but I think it was in the 90s sometime, and the statute of limitations had expired. But to be clear, again, she cannot remember the exact year when this allegedly took place. She herself is not the most reliable person and she seems just off. She's done a lot of zany things over the years, but the New York legislature actually went ahead and passed a law that specifically aimed at Trump that would basically negate the statute of limitations that had already passed so that she could bring these charges again. And she did and went through this big civil trial, not a criminal trial to prove sexual assault and got a New York jury to you know vote that Donald Trump was guilty of sexual assault. And then there was a whole other thing because Donald Trump was tweeting all this stuff about the woman that was accusing him. Trump famously is not one to speak carefully, <laughs> to put it mildly. So he said all these nasty things about this woman. And then there was like a whole other huge 90 or $100 million verdict for damages attacked onto that. So that was this huge, like $100 million verdict over a sexual assault charge. He's appealing that. And I'm sure it's, it's all ongoing. The fourth case is another bonkers case involving Trump allegedly made fraudulent statements in order to obtain a loan. And it's, it's kind of crazy because the New York state attorney general, Letitia James campaigned on going after Trump specifically and, and holding him accountable. These charges were brought and she's been kind of overseeing this whole thing where basically the facts of the case are this Trump applied for a loan from a bank. The bank did its due diligence and concluded that they should give Trump the loan. Trump paid back the loan with interest and no one lost money on the deal. 
and the state came in after the fact because they were looking for anything to get Trump. And the judge appeared to be just, you know, all over the place and appeared to be out to get to Trump in, in ways that were kind of shocking. And even though there was no victim here, um, they came down with a all told with, you know, fines and interest, $450 million fine because Trump allegedly made fraudulent statements as part of a loan application on a loan that he was granted and paid back. Totally victimless crime. And even the Associated Press, which is a horrifically biased joke where a news organization once existed, did a lengthy analysis of similar cases that have been brought in New York going back years and couldn't find anything that was remotely similar to this in terms of why it was brought. And lots of people in the business community have been very outspoken about how this is going to have a very sort of detrimental chilling effect on business in New York, that they're just randomly prosecuting people over politics. You know, it's possible you can make the argument that Trump deserves some sort of, you know, slap on the wrist or or fine for for lying in the loan application if you want to be really strict about enforcing the law. But the $450 million judgment, I mean, everyone agrees, is just completely bonkers and politically motivated. And then finally, the fifth case for Trump that is a problem is this issue of him taking classified documents to Mar-a-Lago. And there's all kinds of issues with that. You know, this is probably the single case where Trump is most vulnerable legally. I mean, he were the one where he more most plainly violated the letter of the law. However, the issue with this is that similar charges have been brought against both Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. And in both cases, they've been let to skate on this. So the fact that they're aggressively pursuing Trump for taking classified documents when he was a president who had declassification powers, whereas the Secretary of State and in Biden's case, the vice president and senator when he took these documents didn't have nearly the legal latitude to take classified documents. It's going to look political if they push those charges too um, aggressively. And it looks like they've already done that. So who do you think Trump will pick as a running mate? He seems intent upon uh, making an announcement before the actual GOP convention. That is a really good question. I don't honestly think people have a really good sense of who that would be. There's a lot of speculation it's going to be a woman. There's been a lot of talk about Christy Nome. I mean, there was talk about Nikki Haley, you know, a month or two ago. I don't know where that stands. They appear to be at each other's throats a little bit more, but Haley might possibly be enough of a career forward person to see that this would be a stepping stone to the presidency because Trump can only serve one more term. But it seems unlikely to me. The other woman that's been mentioned is a little bit, um, and I'm kind of surprised she's not being talked about more. She seems like a, a more serious contender than people are giving her credit for. Is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the current governor of Arkansas. She served in the Trump administration. She's a very popular governor. She, you know, I, I think has demonstrated sort of an af- affinity for Trump and his people in a way that I'm not sure what the other, she didn't have some of the baggage that Christy Noem has. Christy Noem has done some things in her state that haven't made her popular with, with conservatives, like on, on trans issues and some other things like that. I think the dark horse nobody's talking about is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And then of course, there's some talk about Vivek Ramaswamy, just because he's been so good as a Trump surrogate already since he dropped out of the race and he was very good at articulating things. And even when he was running, he was very supportive of Trump. It seemed like he was running for vice president all along in some ways. And, and not just that, Ramaswamy's very good on television and very good as a surrogate, which is a very important role for a vice president. And then finally, there's been a little talk about um, Tim Scott, 
a senator from South Carolina. He's African-American, obviously. He's very well-liked. He's a very nice guy. And obviously, you know, to diversify the ticket, Trump has made major inroads with African-American voters, particularly black men, and something like that could help solidify it and really improve his chances. Along those lines, there's another very sort of Trumpy congressman from Florida named Byron Donalds, who's also black, and he's been talked about a little bit, but no one really knows. But those are a number of people that people are talking about right now. Mark Hemingway is our guest. He's senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. We're getting an update on the 2024 presidential race. On the Democratic side, it's hard to believe we're asking this question, but will President Biden be the nominee? You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. A number of people have asked about Ad Crucem's process to order our first stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther Rose cling available on the website. Pop on over to adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Lutheranism in the Public Square. You're listening to Issues Etc. I like to think of the deaconess vocation as driven by two things, the love of Christ and the needs of our neighbor. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. James Busher, Director of Deaconess Studies at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, on the vocation of deaconess. First, the deaconess is moved by the love of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Yet I think we can also see the profound needs around us, broken families, loneliness, despair. Deaconesses help the church to become a true family that manifests the love of Christ in our love for one another and especially for those in need. For more information on the Deaconess Studies program at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, visit ctsfw.edu or call Concordia Theological Seminary at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155. Confessional Lutherans are invited to rent a four-bedroom, three-bathroom, table rock, lakefront home in the Ozarks. Table Rock Lake is a premier lake in the heart of the Ozarks for boating, water sports, and fishing. This log cabin-style rental sleeps 12 and is 30 minutes from Branson and 20 minutes from Silver Dollar City. Learn more by calling Swanson Estates, 713-855-2681. 
Be sure to mention Issues Etc., 713-855-2681. Welcome back. We are getting an update on the 2024 presidential race. Mark Hemingway of Real Clear Investigations is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Mark, on the Democratic side, will President Biden be the nominee? Almost certainly. I mean, it's just so hard at this point in time to upset the apple cart. And then, of course, there's the Kamala problem, which is that, you know, several polls show that Biden's vice president is less popular than even he is, and his approval ratings are quite low. The idea that you would get rid of Biden would mean you would also have to install somebody else as the candidate that's not the vice president. And particularly because Kamala Harris is a black woman, that would cause all kinds of fractures among the Democrat base, which you know is heavily invested in you know social justice and racial justice. They probably wouldn't like that very much. But who knows? I mean, Biden may not be the nominee just by dint of the fact of his health. He seems very frail. And I will say that it's kind of surprised me. Ezra Klein is a very popular New York Times columnist has basically come out against having Biden as the candidate. And all sorts of people are saying that like this is a far bigger liability than people are his age and his frailty. And then obviously the, the special counsel report that said that Biden is old and frail and can't remember dates is, you know, really, you know, cemented a lot of doubt in people's minds about his ability to lead. So there's a lot more people talking about it and talking openly about it. And it's coming from faithful ideological and party sectors that they're very concerned about this. So who knows, something might happen where pressure builds. And But for now, it just seems like it's way too difficult to replace him. What are your thoughts on Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s bid? Well, this is interesting. I mean, you know, the fact he's gained some purchase says a lot about the discussion we're having in this country. I mean, he has basically become, you know, a significant outsider candidate for no other reason than he's willing to talk about things that no other Democrat is willing to talk about. He wants to talk about COVID and all kinds of other issues, and he wants to moderate on a lot of issues. On other issues, he's very liberal and very stereotypically Democratic, but just by virtue of the fact that he is willing to question orthodoxy on things like COVID and wants Democrats to be more moderate on on guns and some other things has made him someone that people are very interested in. I mean, I think there's a palpable sense that the Democrats have gone just off the deep end ideologically and in terms of the legislative agenda and stuff that they frequently pursue. Whereas the Republican Party, you know, there's a lot of talk about Trump's general personality and the bombast and, and all of that. And while that might seem crazy in its own right, if you actually look at the legislative agenda of Trump, he actually in significant ways was much more liberal than the establishment Republicans that came before him. So it really is an issue where if the country is getting polarized, it's really Democrats moving farther to the left in extreme ways and not because Republicans are attacking hard right. If you actually look at what Republicans and Democrats are are doing rather than simply focus on rhetoric. What are the two biggest issues for voters in 2024? Immigration and the economy. I mean, it's been pretty consistent there on those two issues. Immigration, though, is really interesting because that's not typically a an issue that's near the top of things. But it's gotten so out of control that almost every community is experiencing, or a lot of the big cities particularly, but every community is experiencing it in some ways. You don't take, you know, add 10 million people to the country in the span of a couple of years and not expect that to be felt in, in very acute ways for people. And then on top of that, just a lot of stuff in the news I and mean, the killing of this, this girl in, in Georgia recently, the college student by a 
Venezuelan immigrant who was here illegally, these kinds of things, you know, that happened in a swing state. This is very important stuff for um, a lot of people. And, and the immigration issues is definitely not going away. Bloomberg reported this morning that for the first time, a majority of Americans support building a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. And this is at a time when both Trump and Biden are planning visits to the border. What are your thoughts there? You know, that's kind of interesting. Obviously, if that's the case, then that is an issue that Trump is very closely and dearly associated with and is certainly going to 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 benefit him. I mean, at this point in time, though, I mean, if you've seen the video of like what's going on at the border, um, yeah, there's a lot that we can do policy wise, but it seems, you know, fairly obvious that we got to do something because people are just, you know, exploiting this. I mean, at this point in time, it's again, it's not just an issue of, you know, the economic damage or, you know, the problems that it's causing your community. We get large number of, of, you know, immigrants that don't speak English or whatever moving in. I mean, it's literally an issue of national security. I mean, we have, you know, thousands of Chinese military age males crossing the border right now. And there's almost certainly some of those people are bad actors. We've repeatedly heard stories about you know, people on the you know, terror watch list and stuff like that being arrested after they've been in the, in the U.S. for weeks. And what we should be worried about is, is the guys that we're not hearing about being arrested by law enforcement. So I think people are, are rightfully concerned. But there's a lot you can do policy-wise to stop immigration at the border, which they're not doing. But certainly more physical barriers are, are one way to do it, too. So let's do strengths and weaknesses for both of the presumptive nominees, beginning with Donald Trump and then Joe Biden's strengths and weaknesses. Well, I mean, Trump, obviously, people trust him on the economy at a time where inflation has risen about 20% under Biden and, and real wages are actually down. The economy was prior to COVID crashing, everything was very strong under Trump. And uh, I think people are, are looking to that. And, and then, you know, we just talked about immigration. And obviously, that is an issue that people very sort of very closely associate Trump with that, and that will benefit him. So obviously, Trump's weaknesses, the lack of discipline in his rhetoric, and, and certainly the way that he puts off people in, in terms of his personality and just the fact that he's already earned a significant amount of enmity from a large segment of the public. He's not necessarily going to, you know, he'll have a hard time changing their minds. There's fewer persuadable people out there in terms of trying to get new people to vote for Trump. I think Trump has a campaign manager that's keeping him more disciplined than, than he has been in the past. And we'll see whether that holds up, but you know, obviously his outbursts are a big liability. Biden's strengths. I think that one, he's not Trump. There are a lot of people that are single issue voters that are just, you know, horrendously opposed to Trump and what he just sort of his personality and, and, and who he is and, and how he's been portrayed. I think Trump is more complicated than he's been portrayed, but certainly the way that he acts makes him easy to sort of caricature. And, and Biden, on the other hand, is a known quantity. I mean, he was in the Senate for 36 years before he even became vice president for eight years after that. He's seen as this avuncular, well intentioned guy, even when he's screwing up. It's really quite astonishing, actually. Um, you know, his political career is really one of him being unremarkable and lying and being caught for plagiarizing things and all kinds of other things that would have killed lesser politicians. But Biden just seems to amble on and, and people seem to, you know, shrug and just say, oh, that's Joe. His weaknesses, though, are obvious. I mean, once upon a time, you know, Joe got by kind of on charm and it's not working for him as well now. I mean, he's clearly, 
fading with age and it's it's very uh disconcerting to watch polls show that super majorities of the american public like 80 percent or more think he's not up to the task of being president and then we went through the whole thing with trump's corruption stuff and yeah to some degree that's a liability for trump but i think a lot of people he's gotten more popular in the republican primary when these charges were brought and a lot of people see through these charges see them as, as political, whereas the Biden corruption stuff, a lot of that is new to people. And a lot of people have suspected it's been there for a long time and it's starting to bubble up and that could hurt them. Your wife wrote the book, Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and Democrats Seized Our Elections. Have there been any significant election reforms made since 2020? Yeah, of course there have. For instance, one of the big issues was this issue of Zuck Bucks, where Mark Zuckerberg spent something like $400 million giving grants to local election offices. And this was really just a ploy to get basically Democratic activists into nonpartisan election offices doing all these things to basically run get out the vote operations from, you know, what were supposed to be public offices. Something like 27 states or more have passed laws making private funding of elections illegal as they should. I mean, this should be an issue that Republicans and Democrats widely agree on. You know, you know, we shouldn't have outside actors, you know, funding essential public functions that can affect elections. So things like that have been good. Certainly, there's a lot more just sort of general awareness you know, the RNC, Republican National Committee, is now running a big election integrity operation. There's a lot more people focused on those issues at the, at the ground level. And while that may not be laws and, and, you know, quote unquote, codified reforms, there's a general awareness to what's going on, which is not to say that there aren't all kinds of shenanigans. I mean, I think the, the general problem still exists, which is that, you know, it used to be, you know, we would all vote on one day. We'd know in short order who won. And it was just understood that democracy, to some extent, was self-motivated people getting out there and campaigning for people and, and casting their votes accordingly. Now we have this situation here where we have an election season that drags on for like literally two or three months. I mean, people are casting ballots before there's ever even a presidential debate, months ahead of the election. And it's turned elections into not about who exercises their right to vote, but who can go out there and, and literally have an operation that collects ballots and harvests ballots over a period of months? Who can do that most efficiently, which is very different than self-motivated people going to the polls on a second day. And it's much more disconcerting for democracy, I think. What are your thoughts on tomorrow's Michigan primary and the very quickly approaching Super Tuesday on March 5th? Well... The polls show that it's going to be another Trump blowout, obviously. Michigan was always kind of Trump territory. It was one of the states that he surprised people by winning in 2016. And he's faring extremely well in Michigan to the chagrin of Democrats. Almost every swing state poll that's been taken of Trump versus Biden shows him winning by, you know, five or six points in the state. Something's happening in Michigan for sure. So same with Super Tuesday. I mean, I just, there's, you know, look, Haley might just be staying in because, you know, again, Trump is old and, you know, maybe something will happen, but there's no news there. I mean, Trump is going to be the Republican nominee, barring some sort of crazy black swan event. Mark Hemingway is senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. You can find a link to Mark's columns at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Mark, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Dr. Adam Kuntz about finding hope in times of difficulty. We'll discuss a divided political strategy for the 2024 elections from supporters of legalized abortion. Our guest will be Dr. Michael New, and we'll have Pastor Andrew Packer lead us in teaching on worshiping with the church triumphant. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. 
Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. This is Jeff Schwartz, General Manager of Lutheran Public Radio, with a message for listeners in the Mountain and Pacific time zones. We pledge to have Issues Etc. podcasts posted daily, no later than 5 p.m. Mountain, 4 p.m. Pacific. This will allow you to download and listen to the latest Issues Etc. podcast weekdays during your evening commute. Again, if you live in the Mountain or Pacific time zone, Download Issues Etc. before you leave work and listen during your drive home.